Okay, so today our topic is about entering into the passion. And this is something near and dear to my heart. This is something I don't frequently, you know, on a Sunday Mass, we don't have time to delve into in, in real depth. And so I hope that this conference today is, is helpful to you. Uh, it's not meant to be informational. It's meant to draw us into Christ. Um, this is all over the scriptures. This is all over our tradition as Catholics. Um, there's a quote that Balthazar likes to cite quite a bit uh, that has its roots in the fathers, but there's another German obscure theologian who uh, really coined it. But it says that if Christ were born a thousand times in Bethlehem, but not in you, you would be lost forever. So simple. Right, the Christ, really what, what salvation's about, is not about merely something that happened in the past. Right, salvation is when the mysteries of Christ's redemption are born inside of us. And pretty much everything we do as a church is supposed to lead there. That's the purpose of the sacraments, right? Is to... Uh, not just know about Christ, not just to believe something happened in history, but the purpose of the sacraments, and by the way, of faith, hope, and love, is for Jesus Christ to live inside of you. That's redemption. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is not just to assent to a historical fact, but it's that Christ would live inside of us. And this is, again, we could cite a whole bunch of passages, like, John chapter 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And in that chapter, when he talks about the vine and the branches, Jesus says over and over and over again, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. Abide in me. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in me. Why do we keep the commandments of Christ? So that he would live inside of us. In Galatians 2.20, St. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Right? Faith makes Christ live inside of us. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And we all know this is the great caricature of Christianity. When we don't get this, what happens? Christianity deteriorates into a moral code. And if, if all we have is moral code, Christianity dies. It absolutely dies. Now, the, the moral code is hugely important. Right? The moral law is so important. But you'll never live it just by studying the law. Paul, Paul writes about this all the time, right? And this is what we all thought as teenagers. Remember when you were a teenager and basically you thought if someone had to ask you what Christianity is about, you'd be like, well, God hates fun, and so don't do anything that you think would be fun, <laughs> right? When I used to lead Bible studies for high school kids, I gave them each a catechism, and I wrote in the first page, I would put catechism paragraph number zero, and I would write in it, God hates fun. <laughs> Just as a joke. Uh, everybody laughs, but isn't that what we think? And there's so many spiritual teenagers, people maybe in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, and on and on, but they remain spiritual teenagers because they think that Christianity is about only about law. So today we're going to try to alleviate that and draw ourselves, or maybe the better way to say it is to allow Christ to draw us into the mystery of who He is and into the mystery of His passion. So, in the 15th century, there was a very famous painter uh, who was a Dominican friar, and his name was Fra Angelico. Fra is short for fraterna, 
uh, fraternal, it would probably be O, it must be masculine. But anyway, it, it's, it's, it's a shortening of brother. And so Fra Angelico was a, a Dominican brother. Uh, he entered a, a monastery. And in 1982, John Paul II beatified him. Right, so he's on the, which is on the way to canonization as a saint. And Fra Angelico is considered one of the greatest painters that ever lived. But the reason I bring him up, he's so powerful. I love his paintings. They're, just, they're so beautiful. And Christian art, we're going to talk a little bit about Christian art today. Christian art is so important for us, not just to know things about Christ, but to help us to live in him. And Fra Angelico knew that very, very well. And he's famous. You have all seen some of his paintings before. You probably just don't know it. His painting of the Annunciation is one of the most famous paintings in history. Um, but here's what's cool about Fra Angelico. He did commissioned works where, you know, emperors or um, noble people would and popes would commission him to paint things. But his most famous pieces of art were done inside of a monastery and for his brother Dominicans. And some of his most famous paintings are all about the life of Christ. They're all scenes from his life. And what they're painted in is they're painted in cells of Dominican friars. And what's so cool about this, by the way, this is why before you buy your next, you know, what's his name, Justin Bieber poster, (laughs) you should consider buying some Christian art for your house or your apartment. Um... Fra Angelico knew that the life of a Christian is a life lived inside the mystery of Jesus Christ. And so the brothers in the Dominican order would spend hours and hours and hours inside their cells. And more important than being a famous painter to Fra Angelico, it's not what he sought, was that his brothers would grow in holiness. And the way they did that was when they went to their cell, the place they literally lived, the place of their abode, they were surrounded by the mystery of the life of Christ. That's how we are to live. The the drama of history, what happens with most of us as human beings is that we see our life as a story, and it is a story. But our story is not the main story. The main story of history is the story of God. And our lives really find meaning and purpose and freedom when we take ourselves out of the leading role and we understand that Christ is the true center of all history. So today we're going to talk a lot about prayer. And and prayer, most of us when we think of prayer, we think of prayer as either um, a formal prayer which are good prayers, right? When in Matthew chapter 6, when the apostles come to Christ and they ask him, Lord, teach us to pray, he gives them a prayer that's a formal prayer. They are Father. And so, of course, those things are, are essential. And the liturgy is the highest, the Mass. But what we do in most of our prayers, if you're anything like me, we either do a formal prayer, which is good, or we ask for things, petitions, which are also good. We do that during the Mass. But very frequently when someone says, oh yeah, I pray all the time, usually what we mean by that is we mean we take God and we try to bring him into our life. That's good, right? We pray for things, like this morning we pray for Monsignor Glenn, and we say, Lord, would you bless Monsignor Glenn? We pray for things in our life. We ask God, Lord, would you help this interview to go well? Would you help my friend who's sick to get better? Uh, Would you help... um, I don't know, whatever it is that's happening in our life. Those are legitimate and good forms of prayer. But it goes much, much deeper. And today what we're going to talk about is a form of prayer, we're going to talk about meditation and contemplation. Um, And it's the reverse of that. What is contemplation? What is meditation? Meditation, instead of saying, Jesus, would you come into Brian Larkin's life and would you, you know, we make our debt go away and Lord, help my talk this morning not to suck and like help this and this and this. We invert that. And what we do is we lose our lives in the life of Christ. Okay. 
So I want to start on your sheet. Actually, start on the back side. And there's this wonderful quote from Joseph Ratzinger at the top. If you don't know, that's Pope Benedict, but he wrote this before he was Pope. This is from a book before he was Pope. He says, Praying means not just the occasional recitation of formal prayers, but that inner openness to God, which causes a man to be attentive to God in every decision he makes. Even wrestling with him, should that be necessary, as Jacob wrestled with the angel. Prayer is about an inner openness to God, an inner attentiveness to Him, an inner union with Him. It's not easy. It's one of the most difficult things in the Christian life. But I don't know how people live a Christian life without it. We all know, we've all done it. We, we've all, we all go to Masses, and if we go to Mass, it's so easy for all of us, every single one of us, me included, saying Mass myself as a priest, it's easy for us to go through the, the motions, we all know this, and to hear the prayers and by route say them. But that's not prayer. It becomes prayer the minute you actually interiorly open yourself and are attentive to, and turn toward God. So St. Augustine says, you know that part of the Mass? And it's so cool. St. Augustine knew the same Mass in the 4th century that we know today. There's that part of the Mass that says, lift up your hearts. Do you actually lift up your heart? And I know what you're thinking. No. (laughs) Because, Because most of us don't. We're so used to just saying that. Prayer is the moment where we begin to say, Lord, instead of just saying the words, I'm actually going to lift my heart right now. That's prayer. So this week's a special time. And and, and there's certain things, and what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about some prerequisites in general for our life that can only start today. I mean, maybe wherever you're at, maybe you know some of this, maybe you haven't heard this before. This is a general trajectory of a Christian life. We're going to do some of that, and then we're going to talk specifically about the passion. And how do we do that this week? So, there's some preconditions for this. If you're going to enter into the life of Christ, you have to have some silence in your life. You absolutely have to. It's the hardest thing ever, isn't it? Silence is so difficult, especially in the modern world. If you don't carve out some room for God in your life and some silence, you'll never be able to do this. It'll never happen. A simple thing to do is on the way to Mass, turn off your radio. Because you're, you're trying to open your heart to God. And it's really hard to do that if on the way you're all distracted. If you have all these songs in your head, right, and the Mass begins... And we're like, let us acknowledge our sins. And you're like, you have like Hotel California stuck in your head, right? (laughs) Welcome to the hotel. (laughs) That happens. You have to silence yourself. So, look at the, on the front of your sheet, third quote from the top. From Joseph Pieper. Joseph Pieper is my favorite philosopher. He was a Catholic German philosopher of the 20th century who largely, almost exclusively follows St. Thomas. But he says, To perceive means to listen in silence. And only in silence is hearing possible. Moreover, the stronger the determination prevails to hear all there is, the more profound and more complete the silence must be. I wish it were easier than this. Um, 
a lot of my friends who are in the, like the, in the 20-somethings, I, haven't, I always think I sound like, like kind of like the, I'm older and older curmudgeon. Because I talk about these things with them. I'm like, silence matters. How do you have silence in your life? The music you listen to matters. Satan, you've heard me preach about this, Satan doesn't usually get most of us just by tempting us to large sins. Right? Uh, none of you, hopefully this morning, were, were tempted during like our breakfast to be like, you know what, I am going to grind up marijuana and put it in the eggs just for fun this morning. Right? None of you did that, hopefully. But how does it work? The way Satan works in our lives is not usually through that, it's through distraction. You see, he just, if we can be distracted enough, we'll never think about deeper things. We'll never turn our hearts to God. If you always have your phone on, if you always have the television on. So look at the next quote. People again, there does exist something like visual noise. Have you ever tried to go to a, um, a concert and have a conversation with somebody? It's foolishness. I generally don't, I don't like bars and restaurants that play loud music generally. Because when I go out to eat with someone, I want to be able to talk to them. And you've all had that experience. If you're trying to talk with someone when it's too loud, it gets frustrating. So Pieper says there does exist something like visual noise, which just like the acoustical counterpart makes clear perception impossible. One might perhaps presume that TV watchers, tabloid readers, and moviegoers exercise and sharpen their eyes. But the opposite is true. The restoration of man's inner eye can hardly be expected in this day and age unless, first of all, one were willing and determined simply to exclude from one's realm of life all those inane and contrived but titillating illusions incessantly generated by the entertainment industry. There's just a cost to seeing God. If you're constantly filled with the world, if you have the radio on, if you have entertainment news on all the time, even with politics, right? Politics are important. But if you're constantly immersed in the news, there's no space for you and God, for God. There's just no room in you. It makes contemplation impossible. Why is prayer so hard? If you want to pray, every single one of you has had this experience. Because I've had it for years and years and I still have it. Right? Your life is going crazy, crazy, crazy. You have all these thoughts. You have music going. You have television shows. You're like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen on the final season down in Abbey? I can't even stand it. <laughs> then you try to pray. And whether that means coming to Mass or if you've ever tried to pray silently in an adoration chapel... You go to pray, and you try really, really hard to focus for 30 seconds. And then what happens? Your mind is spinning like crazy. This is how, and again, it's not that these things are evil, but this is how Satan works in the modern world. And he's worked all through history this way. If we're constantly filled with the world, if we constantly have noise, if we always live in a crowd, there's just no space for God. And we wonder where God is, and we go long enough like that, and people say, I really want to be Catholic, Father Brian, but I just don't feel like God's close to me. I don't feel like He's in my life. Guess what? There's no room for Him in your life. You have trained yourself to be filled with everyone speaking to your heart and your mind, except God. It's so hard. Brothers and sisters, we have to recover this. If Christians don't learn how to be silent, we'll never really renew the culture. The renewal of Catholicism in our country is not primarily about moral actions. I'm all for the, the, the important and necessary moral fights we have to fight for the, the sanctity of marriage and of life and all those things and for immigrants. But if we don't have space in our hearts for God, we'll lose Christianity altogether. So I'm not going to read the first quote, but let me sum it up for you. Probably the greatest mystic in the history of Christianity, after Jesus and Mary, 
is St. Teresa of Avila. And St. Teresa of Avila is a 16th century Spanish nun. And I, don't you love it when saints were sinners? Like the best thing ever? Because <laughs> you like, feel so good about yourself? That's why St. Augustine is like so many people's favorite saint. Because whenever I read the Confessions of St. Augustine, it reminds me like, oh my gosh, there's hope for me. <laughs> you were a total chump. St. <laughs> Teresa of Avila is a 16th century Carmelite nun. And she's the greatest mystic in the history of the church. What does mystic mean? It means that she experienced God mystically through her senses. God gave her extraordinary graces. He appeared to her. She experienced suffering for love of Christ. She experienced ecstasy, right, where she was almost like removed from herself in pure joy and mystical union with God. St. Teresa of Avila had a conversion in her midlife after she had been a nun for a number of years. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> she had gone through all these years as a sister, and at a certain point she, she was actually reading St. Augustine, which is beautiful, and she realized that she was lukewarm. And she made a choice, right? At that point in her life, she made a choice. She said, I'm not going to be lukewarm anymore. I'm going to uh, intentionally choose to become holy. And she became the greatest mystic in the history of Catholicism. Unbelievable. So here's the good news. Here's what St. Teresa... Actually, let's do both quotes. First quote. Very often, over a period of several years, I was more occupied in wishing my holy hour of prayer were over. Anybody else ever experienced that? Lord, I love you so much. Man, this is taking long. <laughs> You're like, okay, when I go to Costco today, I need these six things. <laughs> Isn't that good news? St. Teresa of Avila, the greatest mystic in the history of the church, had that exact same experience. I was more occupied in wishing my holy hour of prayer were over and in listening whenever the clock struck than in thinking of things that were good. Again and again, I would rather have done any severe penance that might have given me, um, that might have been given me, then practice recollection as a preliminary to prayer. Whenever I entered the oratory, I used to feel so depressed that I had to summon up all my courage to make myself pray at all. You're not alone. Brothers and sisters, prayer is so hard. Most Catholics, most of you, I imagine, have heard some of this at some point in your life. And what you did is you got all worked up, and you said, I'm going to really try to pray. And you tried it for a week, and you stopped. You're not alone. Prayer is really difficult. Next quote. Those of you whose minds cannot reason for long or whose thoughts cannot dwell upon God, but are constantly wandering. Wow, that happened in the 16th century. Can you believe that? It makes you wonder, like, what were they thinking about? Were they like, I wonder if the nuns were ever thinking about fashion, you know, in the 16th century? They're like, oh my gosh, that sister hasn't washed her habit. <laughs> Those of you whose minds cannot reason for long, or whose thoughts cannot dwell upon God, but are constantly wandering, must at all costs form this habit. I, I don't know how else to say it. You know, as a priest, I try to come up with creative ways for explaining the truths of the faith to my congregation. Brothers and sisters, I don't know of almost anything as important in your life as what St. Teresa of Avila says right there. It is very difficult it takes months, if not years, of training to get to this point where you can sit still and be interiorly silent. But God speaks in silence. And so St. Teresa of Avila says, you must at all costs form this habit. I know quite well that you are capable of it. For many years, I endured this trial of being unable to concentrate on one subject. And a very sore trial it is. Okay. 
so contemplation is what we're talking about today. And this is what it means this week, as we enter into Holy Week. As we look at Jesus Christ and we try to have Him live inside of us. Or we, we can't really try to do that. We allow God. We open ourselves. And if His grace comes, we make space for Him to dwell inside of us. That's contemplation. Now, when you, when you think of contemplation, when you hear that word... What first comes to mind? What does it mean to contemplate? Meditate. What else? Focus. Focus. Do what? Recollect. Recollect. All of you are giving the right answer. I don't want you to. The, the wrong answer that most people usually think of is they, they say to, to contemplate means to think. Remember that statue? I don't know who did it. Of like the guy leaning on his, his chin on his hand. To contemplate does not mean to think. It, it actually literally means, in Latin, it means to see. Contemplation is not to think. It's to see. It's a subtle difference. It's a very, very, very important difference. And Joseph Pieper, who I consider a saint, so we'll call him St. Joseph Pieper. Um, St. <laughs> Joseph Pieper says, he defines it, he says, to contemplate means to see with love. It means to see with love. That's, that's what it is. And you have to silence yourself to be able to do that. So, flip to the back side of your sheet. And we're going to talk, now we're going to just enter a little bit into the passion. Into why is this so important? Why are we going through all these things? Isn't it, we normally think to, to live a Christian life means to do things. That's only secondary. It's only secondary. Primarily to be a Christian is to see something. By the way, so in the New Testament, it's very interesting how this works. In the New Testament, for, in the, you know we had to talk about the Greek a little bit. There's a, the Greek word to see normally is blepo. There are other Greek words. There's horao. There is idu. Um, there's different ones. But... There's another word that's theoreo. And theoreo is what is translated into Latin as contemplatio. Contemplation. And here's what it is. And some of you have heard this before, but it's so beautiful. Contemplation means to see with love. It means to see at a deeper level. It's not just physical sight. It's a moment of intuition. It's a moment of seeing beauty. It's seeing with love. It's, it's very connected to the word ecstasy. Now, when we hear that word again, we hear, we think of a drug or some kind of like sexual experience. That's not what ecstasy means. Ecstasy, again, is a Greek word. It means, it's two Greek words, ek and stasis. Ek means out of, stasis means to stand. Ecstasy is when you stand outside of yourself. And what does that for us is beauty. Okay, so real quick, let's just, just turn back to this. So look at that second quote, and now we're going to jump into Scripture. In John eight thirty seven, Jesus says, I know that you are descendants of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. And why, why are people seeking to kill Christ in the gospel? Jesus says it's because there's no room for his word inside of them. By the way, this is also the story of Jesus coming to when he's born and he comes to Bethlehem. That's not just like a story that's merely about no room at the inn, that's a paradigm for the world. When Christ is born and Joseph and Mary come to Bethlehem and there's no room, that runs throughout the Gospels, that that's also true in a spiritual sense of all of us. Being an atheist, brothers and sisters, I'm actually surprised I don't hear atheism more in the confessional. Being an atheist comes from having no room for God in your life. 
Right? There's no room for Christ at the end, and there's no room for him inside the human heart. So now I just want to walk you through a little bit of like a contemplation and something to give you some prayer for Holy Week. And so that, this is just what I encourage. If you can do one thing this coming week, silence yourself. Most of you are going to have to work. That's fine. Turn off your radio in your car. Turn off the television this week. Intentionally turn your mind and your heart to Christ in prayer. In John's Gospel, there's two parts. And the first part goes from chapter 1 and chapter 13. And to the end of chapter 12, really. And scripture scholars call that the book of signs. The reason they do that is because Jesus performs seven signs in John 1 through 12. And St. John is very careful. He never uses the word miracle. He doesn't say Jesus performed a miracle. He always says signs. And John points them out. If you read John's Gospel carefully, he stops after the signs and he says, Jesus performed this sign. So the one that's most obvious that you'll probably remember the easiest is in John chapter 2 at the wedding feast of Cana. Right? Jesus turns the water to wine. And when he's done that, he says, this was the first of his signs that he performed in Cana of Galilee. And his disciples began to believe in him. So St. John points that out. And so here's the wild thing. Now look at that next quote from John 12. So after, in 12 chapters of Jesus healing the sick, of multiplying uh, the, the bread, of turning water into wine, of curing the blind. After seven signs, we come to John chapter 12. In John 12, 36, he says this. When Jesus had done this, he departed and hid himself from them. Isn't that interesting? There's a deeper meaning to that, right? He hid himself. Not merely physically, historically, but if we aren't open to God, he's hidden from our eyes. Though he had done so many signs before them, yet they did not believe in him. It was that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for Isaiah again said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they should see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and turn for me to heal them. So after all these signs, Jesus does six signs. And at the end of 12 chapters, and Jesus, and don't we all think this in the modern world, how many times when your life is hard and you're suffering and you're questioning God, what do you want Him to do for you? We'll fix it. Yeah, that's true too. <laughs> or you say, Lord, give me a sign. And sometimes people, that brings them to faith. But that's not the norm. Signs don't bring people to faith. And at the end of seven signs, there is no faith. The world does not turn towards Jesus. They turn away from Him. They're blind, right? They're, they're spiritually blind. They can't see. And this is the secret of faith, right? Faith is not about an intellectual ascent. We have to have that piece of it, but much deeper, it's a union of heart with Christ, hearts and minds, an openness. And so in that quote, St. John quotes Isaiah. He quotes um, Isaiah chapter 6. And the problem in Isaiah's book is that Israel is blind and deaf. They don't see, they don't hear. And that's his problem. And Isaiah, when he goes before God and God says, you know, the people are going to be blind, they're not going to see and they're not going to hear, Isaiah, God says to Isaiah, he says, or Isaiah says to God, he says, how long? 
Like, when, when is this going to end? Because he knows God doesn't want people to be blind or deaf. He wants them to see. He wants them to hear. And I forgot to put this on here, but the next quote is from Isaiah 53. It says, Behold, and then the whole book, right? There's been this build in Isaiah. There's this problem of, of blindness and deafness. And in Isaiah 53, Behold, God says, My servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very high. As many were astonished at him, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the sons of men. So shall he startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they shall see. And that which they have not heard, they shall understand. And so Isaiah says, right, there's this blindness, there's this deafness. What's going to cure us from that? What's going to keep cure us from not being able to see? Isaiah 53 is that famous passage, it's called the suffering servant. And it's a prophecy about Christ that's about 600 years before his time. That's what opens the heart. That's what enables us to see. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus hangs on the cross. And at the end of the the Passion, at the end of his death, a Roman centurion says, Truly, this man was the Son of God. They finally... See. Going deep in our faith, brothers and sisters, it's not about um, it's not about just purely a head knowledge, although that can really help. It's about sight. And so Jesus' mission to give sight and hearing fails at the end of twelve chapters. It fails. And the only thing that's going to bring it about is the suffering of God. It's his, his cross. So then in John 17, 1, the next section of that, by the way, it goes from chapter 13 begins the Passion. It's the Last Supper. And in the second half of John's Gospel, the second book is called the Book of Glory. So... John 17, 1 through 5. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him power over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory with which, which I had with you before the world was made. You hear the word glory in there so many times. This, the, the, the book of glory, the second half of John's gospel, is the cross. Ironically, for those with eyes to see, right, that the cross of Jesus is his glory. It is his glory. And John's trying to show us that. When our hearts are opened, it happens because of Jesus' love and his, his death on the cross. And when you do that, right, your heart opens. We all know this. Faith, we trust people we love, don't we? I always tell people in a confessional, if you've been with me, you've probably heard this before. Um, people will tell me they're struggling with faith. And I always tell them... Well, we trust people we love. And faith is another is a, is a way of trusting. So think about someone who you really don't like. And, and if, if they say something to you, if they're, they're trying to teach you something, don't you immediately like turn your ears off? Or someone I don't like, they could be totally right. Like They could be brilliant in their field. They could be talking about something really true. But I don't like them. <laughs> and so I don't trust them. Lack of faith is a, is a matter of heart. 
It's about loving someone, and then we're able to trust them. So, seeing, we have to learn how to see. So that quote in John 19.37, They shall look on him whom they have pierced. To enter into the passion, and this is what I'm trying to drive at. Brothers and sisters, you have to see. When we go, if we go to heaven, if by the mercy of God, if you and I make it to heaven, right, I want to actually physically see the crucifixion. But I think what will happen is I'll be able to say, I've actually been here. I've seen this before. I've been at the cross a thousand times. I've sat there with Mary, the mother of God. One of Fra Angelico's paintings, right, the crucifixion, you see the, um, Mary and John beneath the cross, just standing there. And the point isn't that you go, oh yeah, that's Mary and John. I know who that was. The point is, and me. Like, I've stood beneath the cross. Jesus, I stood there with your mother, and I stood there with St. John, and I stood there with Mary Magdalene. And that's renews my heart. It frees me to see. It takes me away from the distractions of the world. And it frees me to see. John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten Son from the Father. No one has seen God. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is about sight. Why did Jesus become man? So that you could see God. Lord, help me to see. The saints kind of tell it, they all tell us that this is the taste of heaven on earth. When you do this, when you learn how to quiet your heart, when you lose your life in the life of Christ, that's the beginning of heaven. That's Christ living inside of you, and it's how you learn how to have faith, hope, and love. So beauty does this. Let's go back to ecstasy for a second. Right? Ecstasies. Ecstasy is to stand outside of yourself. And we need this. As we go through life, our life becomes monotonous, even if we have like a really exciting life. There's the day-to-day where we, we just go, oh my gosh, there's got to be something more. I get up, I have another day, right? I've got another person I have to deal with, pay the bills, feed the kids, go work out if I have time. Isn't there something more? Beauty, if we see the beauty of Christ, it, it gives us a life of purpose. So, ecstasy, beauty pulls us into ecstasy. There's a, Plato tells it this way. He talks about this in the ancient world. And he says, he tells a story about a philosopher who's walking in Greece, and he's, it's nighttime, and he, there's a beautiful night sky. And he sees a thousand stars, And he's so captivated by the stars that he loses track of where he's walking and he falls into a well. And there's this girl and she mocks him. And she says, you philosophers, you always have your head in the heavens. And Plato says, exactly. He says, contemplatives, and he didn't even have Christ, contemplatives look kind of like a mess in this world. Because they're more concerned about the things of heaven than they are what's in front of them. But he says that's what makes a human being a human being. All right, if you don't have that, if, if all you're worried about is earthly things, your bills, getting ahead, you know, the next thing you're going to do, food, that makes you more animal-like. But what makes a human being a human is that we lose ourselves in something greater. And what does it is beauty, right? Ever seen something so beautiful, it pulls you out of yourself? You see like a beautiful sunset or a million stars, all of a sudden you forget about your life. Beauty pulls us out of ourselves. And as Christians, ironically, the greatest beauty that we can contemplate 
is Christ on the cross. So I want, I want to wrap us up, but I want to, one of the things I want to encourage you to do this week, I want you to look up, go home today, and if I would have thought of it earlier in the week, I would have printed this, this image out for all of you. But this is how we, end, how we enter into the Passion this week. This week you should pull out your Bible. I recommend John's Gospel more than any other. All four of them are amazing. But John's Gospel just has a beauty and a richness that's unparalleled. Um, but there's, a, there's an image. I would go on Google and look up a guy named Tintoretto. T-I-N-T-O-R-E-T-T-O. Tintoretto is another Catholic artist. Um, in the Renaissance. And Tintoretto has my favorite crucifixion painting. And Christian art is so important, right? Just like Fra Angelico knew. Right? My life, I'm not the main actor. I go to my cell, and my life, I'm a supporting actor in the drama of Jesus Christ. His life, his life is the story. And if his life is the story, if Jesus is redeeming the world, if he's giving his life on the cross, that's something I can live for. That's something I can give myself for. So Teen Toretto's painting, um, it's, it's, most of us think Christian art sometimes is just like, either we like it or we don't. And that's kind of the depth of where art discussions go. Right? And like people like, I'll give people icons. And I give married couples oftentimes, I'll give them um, an icon of Christ. And the most common response I usually get if they're really open with me is they're like, I don't really like this kind of art. It looks like a bad cartoon. Right? <laughs> they don't like the way it looks. Art's so much deeper. Art is meant to teach us something, it's meant to help us see something. So Tintoretto's painting, when you first look at it, it's really messy. And there's the crucifixion, and Jesus is crucified, and the other two, the, the two thieves, are in the process of being nailed to their crosses on either side. And there's just chaos. There's people everywhere. There seems like strife. There's, there's all this craziness going on. And I remember at one point I had this in my office, and I would have brought it today, but it's in a box somewhere. But there's, I was like, where's Mary? And I was like, well, she's got to be at the foot of the cross, right? And I thought I saw her. And I was wrong. Because there's a woman standing looking up, and we'll come to her in a second. But Mary is passed out. She's collapsed at the foot of the cross. Because of Simeon's prophecy in Luke chapter 1, that a sword would pierce her soul. And so Mary is right beneath the cross and she's lying, she's fainted. She's, she can't handle the pain. But right above her, and, and here's the crazy thing in this painting, everyone's looking another direction. Everyone's like chaotic and looking in all sorts of direction. Like I said, there's strife, there's chaos, it's, it's very busy. But in the center of the painting, all of that goes away. And there's all this empty space around Jesus. No one's looking at him except one person. And it's Mary Magdalene. And she's in all black. And she's literally just standing like this. And she's just staring. She's the only one in the painting who sees. And, I, and that's an icon of our lives. Right? Most people, they never, it's not that they don't choose to love Jesus and his sufferings, it's that they have no room. They're busy, they're chaotic. How's my 401k? Right? A lot of times in parishes, like, here at Lourdes, there's so many good things happening. John O'Brien and I, and Mary Rogers, and, and all of our staff, we're trying to figure out. How do we stop like being a total mess, right? Because it's just chaos, and we want to be organized. That's good. That's fine. It's good to be organized. That's not Christianity. 
To be a contemplative is to be, and to, to love Jesus, to have room to become a saint. Brothers and sisters, this is not easy, but if there's one thing I can ever recommend in your life, you have to become a contemplative. You have to be Mary Magdalene, who just stands there in silence, who just stands beneath the cross, And is silent and just looks and just beholds. That is the, is the center of the Christian life. Seeing and hearing, right? If you want to be a good person, and maybe, maybe we'll just kind of wrap up with this. People think, well, how did Mother Teresa do it? How do I love my neighbor? How do I, because people think Christianity is about actions, If someone, those of you who have trucks, you know this, right? Imagine if someone asks you randomly who you don't know here today, and they come to you after Mass, and they say, or this talk, and they say, hey, I'm moving. Will you come help me move? There's no way you're going to do it. You're going to be searching in the back of your mind for some lame excuse for why you can't help them. But if someone you love asks you to move, won't you be there right away? my parents ask me for something, like, like if somebody calls me randomly who I don't know and they say, Father Brian, I need an hour of your time, the first thing I do is I groan and not in the spirit. And, but if someone I love calls me and says, Father, or if my parents call me, they don't call me Father. Uh, sometimes they do in public, but um, it's easy. It's not hard. It's not hard. So contemplation, right? If you take one thing from this talk today, brothers and sisters, that's what prayer is seen. It's not... Asking for things can be a form of prayer. Praying for others can be a form of prayer. Saying the Our Father is assuredly a very good form of prayer. But you and I need to learn that prayer is about seeing. Lord, I just want to see you. When I do, my heart is transformed. And my life is recentered. I know where I'm going. I know what direction I'm supposed to take in my life. And I can be like Mary Magdalene. Right? I can just stand. I can stand under the cross. I can let the blood of Christ fall on me. And I can feel that. Right? I can feel His blood as it falls on my, on my body, on my head, my arms, my shoulders. And the world can be crazy. Right? The world, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton can fight forever. <laughs> and they can be crazy. And everybody can have their opinion about it. But I will stand underneath the cross. Okay. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And pray with me again. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, Save me, blood of Christ, inebriate me, water from the side of Christ, wash me, passion of Christ, strengthen me. O good Jesus, hear me, within thy wounds hide me, permit me not to be separated from thee, from the wicked foe defend me. At the hour of my death, call me and bid me come to thee, that with thy saints I may praise thee, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Real quick, before John comes up, or before he starts... Um